there. I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of livehealthy.ae, and this is the livehealthy.ae podcast. Each week, we will interview leaders in the UAE's health and wellness community, and we'll explore topics you read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women. And now it's time to meet this week's guest. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Nasser Al-Jafari, who is the medical director of the DNA Health and Wellness Center in Dubai. Um, he's on our expert panel for um, the website. And we will, it's always so interesting talking to you um, because I think you're like a biohacker, but with all the medical <laughs> background, you know, like I really trust what you're doing. Um, we, we can see you on your Instagram page trying all sorts of things, but, um, first of all, let's sort of, we can't ignore everything that's going on with coronavirus. And I just sort of wanted to find out how you are dealing with quarantine because you're an active guy and you're out and about. So how's it going for you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really unprecedented, isn't it? It's a strange situation. I mean, as you can see, I'm actually back in my office being a medical clinic where kind of front, front line. So yeah, we, we, Closed like pretty much everyone else for a two week period. So I, I spent that two weeks with the family in quarantine. Um, yeah, I think, listen, it took a day or two to adjust, but I'm looking at it positively. And I think everyone else should be. I mean, it's probably the only real, I'm going to call it downtime that I've had with my family where I'm not getting constant WhatsApps, phone calls, emails. Uh, I'm using it as a time to switch off and, and as I said spend quality time with the family so yeah how am I kind of dealing with it I, th- I think you've got to maintain some form of routine and structure with your, your day I mean it's very easy to be passive about what's going on a bit like kind of a school summer holiday where days would just pass by without really achieving anything but I think it's really important um, to really keep that routine and if, if for you that means kind of waking up at the same time of day having your meals at the same time of the day, trying to maintain some form of exercise or, or, or training, which is great. Of course, you're limited, uh, particularly if you're within the confines of a, a department. But as we've seen popping up all over social media, there's plenty of uh, trainers now adapting and showing their lessons online. So, um, yeah, interesting times, but I don't think there's any point in dwelling on what's happened in, in the past and the negativity. I mean, you know, I think the thing here is I almost feel that the, the fear is worse than the actual disease. I mean, I, I don't want to trivialize the disease because, you know, any loss of life is, is devastating. And I, I think particularly the issue with this virus is what that's evolving is that there's a lot of morbidity. So we're seeing a lot of people getting sick. There's a really high attendance to intensive care units, which is, has been a big issue for healthcare systems. So. There's a lot of unknowns, which I think is generating the, the fear as a result of the uncertainty. But let's uh, let's try and move the ball forward. Okay, and um, how do you navigate? And you're one of the most positive. You know, I, you're on my list of positive people in the UAE. But I've been trying to sort of stick to that 
But how do you navigate around the fear that you can feel from other people? Like, how are you personally doing that? Uh, you know, I, I think, first of all, probably one of the best things you can do is put some distance between yourself and the media. Right? It's, it's very tempting to just have the news switched on 24-7, but uh, it's, it really isn't great for people's anxieties. A bad headline is a good headline <laughs> as far as the media is concerned. So I think that's a great starting point. Um, I, I think also there's been a real issue with what Trump would call it fake news. A lot of kind of people throwing around these kind of anecdotal ideas. And unfortunately, it goes with the territory. It's, um, it's a new virus. So we don't have a lot of research, research or evidence behind what, what a lot of our implementations and, um, you know, the way we're living our life at the moment. It's almost like a finger in the air, kind of a best guess situation in terms of, you know, how do we limit the spread of the disease? But I think the important thing is not just taking what you're hearing from, you know, the, the people online or, you know, friends or necessarily family who heard one thing. It's not necessarily true. Um, I obviously have an interest because I'm in the field. So I've been looking at a lot of the anecdotal evidence that's coming out of kind of, you know, China and the small scale studies that have been going on. So I, I think it's probably a bit easier for me to, to, to decipher what's probably True or, or, or more scientific than what's just, you know, people are, are just spreading that has absolutely no basis. And what's striking you lately in that front? What you, you know, what you're reading and parsing? Like, what are you, you know, when you're, when you're reading and you're discerning, what are you taking away right now about where we are? Listen, I think, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of people talking about the kind of mortality rates and that's, Kind of a lot of the fear with this virus. I think the important thing that people need to bear in mind, and I know we have to, and particularly governments have to model on worst case scenarios, uh, but you know, the death rates are based on how many people have been tested. So the death rates and morbidity rates are based on those who have actually had a COVID test. Now, we don't know exactly how many people have the illness or have had the illness, but you there's various reports of a factor of X, whatever that X may be, uh, it's going to be far higher. So, and, and I think that's important because when you're hearing of death rates in, uh, for example, Italy, up to sort of 10%, that is kind of shocking. But then you have to ask the question, well, what percentage of that population have, have actually had the illness or, you know, had, the, had contracted the virus? So I think taking a step back and considering that, we don't actually know what the mortality figures are. And I think it's going to be a long time until we, until we do. Um, I think, you know, naturally there's always the concern with your younger ones, being a parent also myself, but I think probably one of the only or few saving graces with the COVID is that children seem to be largely spared, particularly under the age of 14 years. The issue with children is more the fact that they're actually they're more likely to be asymptomatic. So never really even experience any symptoms. So they were the originals to sort of super spreaders. Um, but I think, you know, generally speaking, there doesn't really have to be much or already a, lo a low grade fear in terms of kind of keep children safe. We should be focusing more on, you know, the, the over 65s, over 70s, and particularly those with comorbidities. So we've seen those with lung disease, those who are immunosuppressed, um, those with heart problems. And, and actually increasingly we're finding that people with um, obesity 
okay. seem to be a lot more susceptible, which is one that wasn't really on the radar initially, but certainly um, more reports coming out, whereby it seems that the, those who are more overweight tend to be uh, those who are more likely to be to intensive Could you just sort of try and explain to us about why that might be? I, don't, I honestly don't think we know yet. Um, it, it may be something to do with uh, people who are overweight uh, tend to have more overactivity of their immune system. They're more inflamed. And one of the issues with the COVID virus, it does seem to trigger quite a significant inflammatory cascade in some people. Okay. Uh, but really, as of yet, we, we, we just don't know. Okay. Um, so obviously, as we, you know, hopefully start to get over some sort of curve on this in the next couple of weeks. And obviously it's going to take a long time for things to get back to any semblance of normal, but your field of wellness, like how are you seeing now that this will change your field? Yeah, yeah it's an interesting question. It's something I've thought about and we've spoken about uh, in the clinic. I think certainly whilst it's going on, uh, I'm seeing two groups of people those who are unfortunately potentially drinking more, moving less, and eating more <laughs> refined foods, um, and being more stressed naturally. Um, but then you've had the other sort of side of the uh, wall where there's people who have used the time to actually attend to their health more. And actually, paradoxically, I, I think I, I, surprisingly, even though I think I, I live a pretty healthy lifestyle, maybe relative to most people, I've been able to spend more time actually training okay. and, um, you know, spending time to, to prepare kind of food, etc. Uh, I think after this, let's see, but uh, I, I believe that more of the population will pay more attention to their, their health, particularly uh, prevention. I see the way healthcare, other than that, will, will be delivered slightly differently as well. I mean, we've seen the... Um, Increase in teleconsultations with the kind of social distancing. I mean, here is a prime example. We, we could be doing a consultation right now. Um, and I think kind of a lot of care in the community, care in people's home, may, may, may take off. But I think overall, I think that this virus has made people feel vulnerable, particularly when their, their health is concerned. And, uh, I believe from experience that this, this well, people will stop paying more attention. And what about, I mean, in your office, you've told me you see people who are experiencing a ton of stress and that's causing mm. a lot of problems for them physically. What about just this forced, a lot of people are talking about this forced slowdown, but do you think that's going to change the way people are living their lives and how they deal with whatever stuff they were under before this happened? I, I, I don't think um, massively. I mean, you touched on an interesting subject that kind of segues into sort of mental health. Uh, and that comes back to what I was saying before. I, I, my, my concern here is that fear is actually and, and the economic impact of our response to COVID is actually going to lead to increased job losses, uh, poverty in certain parts of the world. Um, increase, which will lead to increased anxiety and depression. And, you know, that's unfortunately going to potentially lead to higher rates of suicide and, and deaths through, you know, lack of sanitation and infectious diseases in other parts of the world, which 
probably will outweigh the direct um, loss of life from the, the virus itself, okay. which I, I don't think most of us have considered. And I'm not saying that I would have, if I was in government, responded any differently. I think you're in a very uh, difficult situation, and, and a lot of it was based on modeling for a worst-case scenario. And I think in, in particular here, I mean, if you look at kind of historically, you know, how whether this one of these events kind of manifests kind of for better or worse, a lot of it is directed by the, the leadership. And I, I think we've got a sterling job here in terms of, you know, the efforts that are going into controlling uh, the spread of the virus and the amount of testing that's going on when compared to different nations. Um, have you heard any any really wacky theories about how you can stop yourself from getting coronavirus or any just like ridiculous things? <laughs> so, I mean, naturally, you, you've had a lot of kind of people come out with uh, certain supplements. Okay, uh, I, I'd heard a story that a lot of supermarkets had run out of um, orange juice because of the vitamin C. And um, you know, vitamin C definitely has a role in potentially, uh, well, it, it improves your immunity and certainly if you have a virus will uh, help speed up the resolution and then and improve your immune response to that, that virus and potentially make you more resilient. But we're talking really high doses of vitamin C, so not not the doses of vitamin C you're going to get in an orange juice or a standard kind of oral supplements. You know, the studies that showed positive effects were in, you're talking in doses in the thousands they can every hour or two during the day or, you know, very high dose IV infusion, which was actually studied in, in um, you know, certain hospitals in, in China and shown to have some beneficial effects. So, you know, there's, there's a role of, of, you know, a lot of herbal supplements and nutritional interventions like vitamin C and zinc with respect to kind of other viruses because it's been able to be studied, but we haven't been able to study it directly with COVID. Um, but often the, the, the doses are different to what people are taking in the mainstream. I did uh, in terms of sorry, go on. I did notice zinc was sold out. Um, and I heard when I tried to order my regular zinc that I took, it's it's all sold out as well. Uh, yeah, exactly, and it, it's kind of that herd mentality. You know, we haven't seen it here, again, fortunately, which is a great thing. But back home in the UK, I mean, the fact that supermarkets were running out of certain essential products is just, it's an almost foreign concept and bizarre to be uh, living through. But it, it is that mentality where if people have any sort of, it's just a survival instinct. So, you know, your basic survival instinct is really food or water and then shelter over your head. And then, you know, at another end of the spectrum, if people feel that there's going to be a supplement out there that's going to keep them better or prevent them from dying, then natural instinct is the piling. Now, in uh, happier times, you do uh, vitamin infusions at um, at DNA. You, Correct. You, so you can come and get an IV. And who comes and gets these and when? what can they do? So we have different types of IV infusions that are broadly based around uh, high-dose vitamins, minerals, uh, amino acids, and a few other sort of compounds. Uh, a lot of it's tailored specifically to that individual, and we have people who come for various reasons. So naturally speaking, in recent times during COVID, we did have people coming for immune boosts. But again, I'll stress, they weren't kind of mainstream ingredients. We were using uber high doses of 
of vitamin C uh, in people. And, and beyond that, uh, people have various issues, so energy issues. And then those who we've done targeted testing, we're correcting it in certain imbalances, uh, even kind of psychiatric interventions as well. So bizarrely, to some people, your neuro neurotransmitters are controlled proportionally by a lot of your nutritional balance. So we used it in, in, that, in that respect. Um, for other people, kind of the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant sort of nature of the IVs. And then generally speaking, others who just don't want to take oral supplementation. And I think that's an important point that, you know, it's nice to get our nutrients through food, but our bodies in general are just under a lot more stress than they historically were. So we have a lot higher demand. And at the same time, the quality of our nutrition has fallen. So I know you've heard me say this before, but I, I just, that we are in an age where we do need to supplement. But on that note, the supplement industry is an unregulated industry, so you have to be very careful about, you know, what supplements you're going for. There are some third-party testers that will uh, validate you know, the supplements or do it under kind of the direction of a physician or dietitian or trainer. Those, those what they're doing. If you wanted to take vitamin C for immunity, do you have any pointers for what people would take? Are they able to do it now? Yeah, so uh, listen, for most people, what's, what's accessible is oral supplementation. So uh, I tend, tend to recommend, certainly during the, these sort of periods, take about three to four grams. So that's three to 4,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day. Uh, some people need to take that divided through the day because it can have an, an effect where the toilet, osmotic effect in the bowel. Uh, but usually three, four grams is fine. Um, and then you know, at the onset of a viral illness, I would go much higher and as much as your body would tolerate. I mean, I've had people going oral doses up to sort of 20,000, so 20,000 milligrams or 20 grams. Um, and then when we're giving IVs, we've given up to 100, 100 grams of, of vitamin C. Yeah. Vitamin C is one of those things that has been sort of scoffed at by people who have... Um, Talked about it, you know this, right? Like it's been sort of like off and discounted, and you just your body just excretes it and it doesn't absorb any of it. But aren't they using it in hospitals for for COVID patients? Yeah, exactly. So there are studies that went went on in China. I believe I saw a report of the hospital in New York using it. I'm, I'm sure there's other places. I think, listen, you, you'll always get some stigmatism and negativity about alternative therapies. Um, and I think a lot of that revolves around the fact that you're never going to have, or it's very difficult to do large scale double blind randomized control trials into these sort of interventions because usually these sort of activities are sponsored by the pharmaceutical industries. Uh, and so it's just not going to happen because there's nothing that can be paid. Or sold really to, to anyone's profit, um, and then at the same time, I think you know, people are generally set in their ways. So it's a, it requires a different mindset and goes against the way a lot of clinicians were were trained. Uh, I believe I sit somewhere in the middle where I've been traditionally trained and I'm not negative again about normal medical interventions, but I'm I'm open minded about the alternative and. And I'm not someone who's just going to suddenly start something again. If I've heard someone talk about it, I will look into the evidence. And a lot of these interventions have been used 
people for well over sort of decades, 40, 50 years in Russia, Germany, Austria, small scale trials. Uh, and, and then ultimately, if you're unsure, unsure about an intervention, you know, you've got to look at, well, what, what's the potential downside? So, okay, if that level of evidence doesn't exist, the positive effects that you're comfortable with, well, is there any negative effects? Uh, and often with a lot of these interventions, there isn't. Sometimes there is, and I think you have to run and, and there's been certain things that I haven't sort of proceeded into yet because I haven't done enough reading on it. And I think there's a lot of um, still uncertainty. Um, but I think, I think it's really for you to arm yourself with the facts along with whoever is helping or prescribing the treatment to you and, and making a decision that you're comfortable with because everyone has different thresholds for risk. You know, for, for some people I see one in a thousand is too much and, and, and others are happy to take that. So it comes down to just making an informed decision. Um, but with certainly with vitamin C, I think you'll struggle to find any reports of, of downside yet. There is a lot of small scale studies that have shown its application in, in particularly in cancer therapy, even as an adjuvant therapy, um, but also uh, um, anti-inflammatory interventions helping with uh, viral illnesses. So. Now, you mentioned that you sit somewhere in the middle, you know, you're not way out alternative, but you're not mainstream either. And can you sort of, in the time that you've taken this route since you left medical school, what have you seen happen in the, me in the medical field? Do you see more people coming around to alternative complementary therapies? Do you think that the field is changing? Do you think that sort of, um, you know, influenced by the pharmaceutical industry and all that, do you see that changing? Um, I, th I think there's a lot to be said for, uh, you know, the fact that now we have the internet. Um, it's a lot easier for people to empower themselves. And that's a good and a bad thing because, uh, Sometimes partial knowledge isn't, isn't a good thing and, and can actually have detrimental impact on, on, on people and the route that they could. Um, it's certainly not there into the mainstream yet. And uh, we've spoken about some of the powers that are at play. Um, but I think also just people aren't in the, in the mindset yet to embrace that sort of intervention. Um, but I, I definitely see an increase in, in interest and, a lot of the time, a lot of the reason why people come across my path is because they've tried the normal health system and they haven't got any better or, um, if anything, they've just been neglected. There hasn't really been a label for what they've presented with because it doesn't fit in a, into a traditional pathology, yet it's, there is still a lifestyle illness that's, that's going on. And, Two of the key areas that I feel are neglected are, are stress often and, and sleep deprivation. I mean, if I think back to my medical school training, I, I don't think I got any lectures or teaching on sleep. Stress we knew was bad for us. Uh, nutrition there was probably a few sessions and invariably it was probably wrong given what we're now. And exercise you were told to do 150 minutes of cardio a week. Still is. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, you won't see many people going or physicians going down that route. Uh, I think for me, I just kind of had a co cohort of patients that just didn't think we were treating them optimally. And, and it, it helped working alongside another physician who was like mine. 
So um, you feel a lot less isolated and, and more confident to practice how you practice it. If someone else is almost legitimizing it, who you're, you're with. It's like exercise or enrolling in a diet. You know, if you're doing it with your partner or someone in your family, um, you're, you're less likely to proceed. Sorry, you're more likely to proceed. More likely. How, how about this rise in autoimmune, um, autoimmune issues that it seems like everyone you hear about, you, you, you're just hearing about all sorts of arthritis and thyroid problems and like, it just seems to be rampant. And I, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And I know that stress plays a big role. Where do you see it at right now from where, you know, from when you saw it emerging? Yeah, so I, I've definitely seen a, a big boom in my relatively short career, 15, 20 years. And uh, particularly the common ones are thyroid disease, uh, low thyroid, particularly the autoimmune version. And it seems to be predominantly women uh, that are affected. Uh, yes, inflammatory bowel disease is, is another one. And kind of that leads into just general gut health in, in general, I think, is on, on the rise. Issues are, are on the rise. I think if we strip it back kind of simply, autoimmunity is a dysregulation of the immune system where the immune system starts to attack itself. And uh, I, I just believe that our immune systems are becoming overwhelmed by our lifestyle, and that's everything from our nutrition and not just the constituents, the not just the various macronutrients, so the fats, the proteins, the carbohydrates. Um, I think it's also the frequency that we're, that we're eating, that we're eating at the wrong time of the day, where we're not sleeping well, in terms of the length of time that we're sleeping, the quality of sleep. We're either under-exercising or exercising too much, paradoxically. Uh, and we're, we're very highly emotionally stressed. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think there's definitely some people who, are, on a genetic level, are more predisposed. But having gone from a traditional lifestyle you know, maybe a, a couple of generations ago to the lifestyle we're leading now, it's just foreign to our body and our immune system just is constantly under attack. And I believe that this stimulation and just regulation of the immune system is causing a rise in autoimmunity. And um, how do you, when people, okay, one thing I've heard is that this is sort of a medical intuitive, maybe a bit out there, but the body, what did someone say? The body whispers to you before it screams or it knocks before it bangs on the door. So what are some warning signs for people before maybe they head all the way down that road of getting an autoimmune disease? If, if, if sleep and stress have something to do with it. Uh, I, I, I think the, the presenting symptoms are so broad, it's very difficult to highlight an exact kind of subset. But what, what I would say on a simple level is that if you just don't feel well yourself, and again, this comes back to what I was saying about a lot of people who will go and seek medical advice and feel neglected because a lot of their traditional tests and investigations will come back normal or... Um, you know, they don't fit in a, to a particular disease category. Um, you know your body better than anyone else. And often uh, it'll be because either that person seeing you hasn't kind of uh, done the right sort of testing uh, or looked at the correct sort of parameters or really looked at a, a, an integrated view of you as a whole. So the traditional 
approach to healthcare is that uh, it's systems orientated. But for example, stress, if you take stress, will feed, feed into all your systems. So you may have someone who prevents, presents to a psychiatrist, but the psychiatrist isn't necessarily going to be tuned into the effect on your endocrine system and how that affects your gut. Your, you've spoken about thyroid, how that's going to affect your fertility. So I, I think it's listen to your body, be in tune with your body and, and, and really it comes down to kind of seeking the advice of the right, the right person and generally someone who's going to take more of an interpretive approach. And, and the thing I tell people is I'm not anti-medical. I, but you know, I, I'm, I have the benefit of being a family medicine consultant as well. And we normally act as the gatekeeper into the health system within a lot of the Western systems. So, you know, if I feel someone needs a subspecialist advice, then I will, I will tune into them. But, but the important thing is that I'm here to advocate for them and bring everything together. Okay. Um, now if people look at your Instagram page, they'll see you in a, <laughs> this is off subject, but they'll see you. We both did a workshop, uh, in happier times in February. That was, I think, one of the most amazing things I ever did. They'll see you in a tub mm. of sitting in a tub of ice water, basically. <laughs> Relax. You look very relaxed. I done it. It's not relaxing. But can you explain? You know, we went to a Wim Hof shop. Can you just tell people what the experience there and, and you know and how it's it's changed you? Yeah. So the Wim Hof method is essentially based on two main principles. One is um, breathing, and you know the fact that you know breathing is one of the cornerstones to living healthily or healthier, and. Um, you know, cold therapy, cold, cold adaptation. Uh, and then through the breathing therapy, improve, improving your kind of resilience and mindset feel cold therapy. And it, 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 it's those two things that none of us are experiencing. So none of us really are, are breathing properly. And uh, we're not cold adapted because we live wearing clothes indoors in air conditioned environments. Um, and it turns out that both of these very simple, free, uh, accessible interventions uh, actually have profound effects on our, our health. And uh, a lot of it comes through their influence on what's called the vagus or vagal nerve that a lot of people have heard about, which regulates a part of what's called the autonomic nervous system. Autonomic just means a part of the nervous system that's not under conscious control. And it's a part of the autonomic nervous system that is the one that puts you into your rested state, which really should be our default state. But unfortunately, as a modern population, we're more in the fight or flight state. And it's amazing what that rest, and some people call it rest and digest state, does to our health. We, it does what it says on the tin. We, we calm down. Uh, our mental health improves. Our stress resilience improves. Our gut starts working properly. And it also looks like, it, and this is proven scientifically, that it regulates our, our immune system, our hormonal balance, our metabolism. So these, these are very simple interventions that I, I believe everyone should be doing, even if it's just a few minutes a day, and, and will have massive impacts on, on health. And I, I, I'm testament to it myself. I mean, I'm fortunate enough in that I've been able to continue with cold plunge baths. And you know what I don't have access to it. The cold shower is enough to replicate the effects. Um, it, it's amazing how much my sleep quality improved, um, my body composition improved. 
you know, a lot of people are always hunting for the next kind of big thing or elixir that's going to make them live longer or healthier. And it, it always comes back to these simple things that either we've forgotten or, or just haven't really, it hasn't been spoken about. And I believe kind of breathing, cold adaptation, sleep, fasting are all three interventions that we should all be focusing on to improve our health. I was fascinated at that workshop, A, with how relaxed I was. And for such a long time after that, I stopped. Like, I just felt like I was in another yeah. world driving home. But when the instructors talked about, and you talked about the concept of hormesis, which I think is mm. so interesting. And hormesis, can you explain it and, and what it's about in terms of the mind and the body? Yeah, so hormesis kind of describes the events of whereby cell or an organism or the human body is exposed to a, a stressor and that can be anything from spoken about fasting can be cold therapy can be heat therapy as well so sauna therapy which is very popular in some northern countries the the, the body will uh, adapt and become more resilient um to 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 further kind of more extreme stressors so all these interventions have been proven to improve uh, health and longevity and lifespan um, through that very mechanism. So you're getting kind of upregulation of certain genetics and genes that will make your cells more, uh, mitochondria within the cells more, more resilient. So you're basically saying you have to do this hard thing. And I know it's going to be hard. And your body's like, ah, <laughs> but then, but then it gets stronger. It gets stronger from that ice bath. It gets stronger from yeah. the class or even the, the fast, the, the four-day fast or whatever. Each thing is making it more strength, strong and resilient. Is that the way? Exactly. I, I think, sorry, I missed probably the obvious one is exercise. I mean, everyone kind of knows intuitively that you exercise, your body adapts and you improve. It's the same <laughs> with these other um, interventions and, and really profound as well. I mean, your heat therapy, cold therapy, it's been shown to be as impactful as, as doing exercise. Not that I'm saying it's a substitute, but no one talks about it. It doesn't get any sort of attention. And that they're very easy to implement into people's lifestyles. I mean, how, how much, how easy is it just to not eat? I know psychologically the concept is difficult and, you know, hunger cravings initially will come in. But just if you think about it on a really abstract level, just don't eat. I mean, it, can't, it doesn't cost you anything. Um, you don't have to worry about what to cook or whether you're eating organic. Uh, you just do it and you, you become more productive. Now, you know, there's a slight caveat, you know, in terms of, as you know, because I know you've done kind of fasting and fasting mimicking intervention. It takes time for your body to adjust, but that's just because we become so, um, dependent on eating so often, but it, it's not a normal concept. This is where, yeah, you've won me over because I used to say to you, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not fasting. I don't like it. I like my snacks and my meals. And I was adamant about it. But after the Wim Hof method, which just, I think, proves that when you do one hard thing, it opens your body and mind up to doing other hard things because you see the benefit of the one hard thing. So growth comes from that. But I, I tried yeah. fasting mimicking diet and was, you know, blown away with the results. Now, I know you tried fasting mimicking. I think you said you prefer to not eat at all. But if you're going to try a, a fasting diet with just water, are there dangers involved in that? Like, what's the length of time? How, you know, should what should people be careful of? 
I, I think I want to say that generally speaking, it's very safe, but there are caveats that, you know, I never recommend it for people with kind of eating disorders or those who are underweight already or, or children or pregnant mothers. They're, they're the key ones. And then you have, for example, people who are on medications, particularly type 2 diabetics or diabetics in general, whereby I would only recommend doing it under the advice of an experienced physician who is used fasting in the, the practice. But those people aside, extremely healthy. Now, I'm not saying that when you try it for the first time or the first time, you're not going to get uncomfortable side effects. You you will. But that's almost a sign that your body needs it. Um, it's a very normal process to go through. Um, if you think back through our evolution, we didn't have a constant supply of food. On a, a very simple level, why do we store fat? It's, you know, the times when we were going through fasted periods and we could burn the fat and, and produce ketones. And that's an interesting topic because everyone's talking about ketosis and ketotic diets. It was far more likely that we were in ketosis intermittently through fasting rather than nutritional ketosis because even the most extreme populations or fat eating populations ancestrally probably weren't in ketosis a huge amount nutritionally because they still ate a lot of carbohydrates, even in kind of the ice relative to what the standard Americans eat. So, um, yeah, I think it's a very natural process to go through. It may be uncomfortable to start with, but is it an extremely powerful intervention? Is there an upper end? Again, I think if you're doing anything beyond five days, I would do it under physician supervision. But uh, that's not to say I haven't people do. I've seen people do longer, and I'm sure you've seen diaries or online reports with people doing far longer. I mean, a lot of these people in the biohacking field, it's not uncommon for them 21 days, for example. Again, not that I'm saying that I'm, I'm an advocate for that for many people at all. Um, it's just, I, th I think that can just pr is proving to you um, what the body can go through. And your mind will tell you you need food and, and you have to, but you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll start with a day or something like that. Would you suggest to start small or? Yeah, I, I, so I, you know, I broadly categorize fasting into daily time restricted eating, which is a common one, which most people do, which is a lot of people talk about 16, 8, 16 hours fasted, 8 hours eating. I prefer the earlier time restricted eating by starting having your eating window earlier in the day because again, physiologically, we were designed to digest during daylight and eat during daylight hours. Don't worry if you can't achieve that. Um, and then there's the kind of longer types of fasting. So if you're going to go anything longer, yeah, maybe I would just dip your toe. If you're used to a 68, doing a, a 24 hour food fast or even starting with just one meal in a day. So, you know, there's no set prescription. We do not have the evidence yet to say, right, this is the exact prescription that people need to follow. Um, we just know that a combination of, of, a, of applying daily time restricted eating with less frequent, longer fasts scientifically has a beneficial impact on it. Okay. Well, listen, I've uh, taken a lot of your time and I appreciate it. Always you it's and talk to you um, forever about this stuff, but I really appreciate it and um, safe help to you and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you. See you again. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. 
We'll see you next time on the livehealthy.ae podcast. 